And if you're just joining us at Lebanon Christian Church, this is your first time. I want to give you a little bit of update as to why we're doing this. If you're joining us online for the first time, I want to introduce you to the series. Um, but if you're returning to Lebanon Christian Church, maybe after a long time away, um, my hope is that you'll get caught up here just a little bit. And then if you missed some weeks, you might check them out uh, even online. Kind of my heart behind the Hard Truth series, in, in, in every age of God working among his people, there have been some truths that because of the culture, uh, because of the difficulties, because of the worldview, uh, that are, are more difficult for us to align our lives and our hearts with. Some of them are consistent across different cultures and times, uh, but, but every culture kind of has its own nuanced difficulties. Uh, and in my lifetime as a follower of Jesus, I started truly trusting and following Jesus, became a disciple on uh, July 16th, 1989. Um, I've observed things in my own life, uh, my own struggles, truths in God's word that um, continue to kind of hit me between the eyes and be like, Craig, wake up. This is what I want for you. This is what my desire for you is. And some of those same truths I've seen in my role as a pastor um, show up in your life and the lives of others that I've had the joy of serving with and following Jesus alongside. And even from a distance, just looking at the body of Christ as a whole in our country, uh, some of those same truths have risen to the surface. And I told you from the beginning, this would not be an exhaustive uh, dive into hard truth. Uh, we're just looking at five, and we'll likely cycle back at some time in the future and have more hard truths that we look at. So far, we looked at the hard truth about money, uh, the hard truth about words, the hard truth about conflict, uh, the hard truth about judgment. And today, we're going to end our series looking at the hard truth about hell. Um, just about 10 minutes ago, um, we sang a powerful song together. Um, I stopped singing a couple times to pray and could hear you singing it out. And the words that you sang were, I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. And so if you sang the words of that song, my question for you initially is, did you mean it? When you proclaimed, God, I want to make room for you. I want to make room for you to do whatever you want to today. Did you mean it? And maybe if you didn't sing the song because you're not sure you want to make room, I have a prayer for you. I want to pray now. God, I thank you for the privilege, the trust, uh, the sacred responsibility of just sharing your words. God, ultimately, preaching and teaching is uh, just saying what you've already said and I pray that you would use my words and that they would only serve yours and that you would drive them into our hearts, not just to allow them to stay in storage, but Father, to grow and to reap a harvest. Um, God, I pray for those who've been following Jesus for a long time, that they would make room, make room to be reminded of your call, um, to make room to be people whose hearts are shaped by compassion for the lost. And Father, I pray for those who are here who aren't really sure why they're here. Maybe they're here because they were forced to come or maybe they just showed up today. Um, but God, especially those who don't yet have a relationship with you, they don't yet trust and follow you, God, will you help them make room for you? And 
your difficult um, but powerful and redeeming words when it comes to hell. Help us, God, in the coming moments. In your name we pray and trust and anticipate the name of Jesus. Amen. The hard truth about hell. What makes hell so difficult to talk about? Uh, I think there are probably several reasons, but a few that I came up with. One, uh, we live in a culture that's growing increasingly more sensitive. Uh, we, we don't like to hurt feelings. Uh, we like to minimize consequences. Um, the words FOMO kind of ring out. They show up in your texts. Uh, we have a fear of missing out. Uh, everyone gets a trophy. And in that type of culture, to believe in something that stipulates that likely millions of people could spend eternity tormented in hell is unpopular and uh, really politically incorrect. And so that makes it hard to talk about hell. Another reason it's hard to talk about hell uh, is that we have fictionized and fantasized hell. Even some popular heroes of the last decade come from hell. Uh, I'm looking at you, Hellboy, all right? There's a movie that about you know, someone that's a, basically a child, a spawn of Satan, and he does heroic things. And even in our Marvel movies, heroes can come and go in wickedness. In our vocabulary, we speak of hell more lighthearted. Uh, we've monetized an entire industry on horror that celebrates evil, vile, horrific things. That's why they're called horror films. And I think that hurts uh, our discussions about hell. And the third reason, again, this is an exhaustive list, I think we struggle with hell is that there's some mystery surrounding it, right? Similar to heaven, where there are things that can be known, but there are also many things that aren't known. Sometimes we kind of get lost in what isn't known, and that distracts us from what we can know. And my hope really is, over the next 25 minutes or so, just to help you see some hard truth about hell straight from God, from his word, from the mouth of Jesus. Um, but a little disclaimer as we begin, uh, I, like you, have experienced at times people who seem to take a lot of pride and get a lot of, uh, I don't know, they, they feel good about standing up on milk crates and boxes and yelling and telling people they're going to hell. I've seen the people like you on the streets of big cities who remind everyone they're going to hell. Maybe they stand outside at a, at a, at a parade or at a, at a large event, and they feel like it's their job just to tell everybody you're going to hell. And it seems as though what bothers me is they get some sort of satisfaction out of letting everybody know that they're, they're going to torment in hell. And I want you to know that I grew up in churches that did some of that where it seemed like the preacher had a lot of joy in letting everybody know you're going to hell. And I want you to know that's not the heart that I come from. Uh, when I look into the word and I see Jesus' words on hell, I don't see Jesus come from a place of pride. I don't see Jesus come from a place of joy. I see Jesus who has a heart of compassion moved for people who wants them to see the realities they'll face apart from him. And so he comes with this compassionate warning Sometimes it's a hard warning, but it's a compassionate warning because he wants people to experience his life. And so if you grew up in a church tradition where you were maybe wounded, where maybe you heard about hell a lot, and it's 
scared the bejeebies out of you, whatever bejeebies are, but it scared you, all right? Um, I hope that's not the case today. I hope you'll feel the strong warning and the compassion of, of God. So where do we start? Where do we start when it comes to the hard truth about hell? Uh, I think we start here. Uh, the hard truth about hell is that hell is real. Hell is real. There's a tendency in our world and culture to want to write off hell as maybe this metaphor that speaks of difficult life circumstances. And, and maybe when you die, it's just something that is just not very much fun. It's just, it's just an experience. Um, but hell is very real. And Jesus ultimately doesn't give us room to just treat hell like a metaphor. Jesus never once speaks of hell as though it's just some, uh, you know, allusion to something different or, or something out there to describe something. It, it is a real experience. Ten times in our New Testament, Jesus uses a word that we have translated as hell. Uh, eight times in Matthew, uh, two times in Mark. And, and, and the word he uses is the word Gehenna in Greek, would have been the word that, that Jesus speaks that we translate hell. And that word is important. Uh, Gehenna was a place. Uh, Gehenna was a ravine or a valley outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Gehenna is simply a word that the Greeks began to use that they, they basically shifted into their language. The fancy word for that is transliteration to give you an idea um, that like our word baptism the, the Greek word is baptizo, and instead of translating fully immersed in water and giving us that word, uh, the, the translators just said, okay, what would this sound like in English? It's, it's baptizo, it's baptism is going to be our English word. Well, in Greek, the word is Gehenna, but it comes from the Hebrew. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people would talk about a valley. They would say it was Gehenom. It was the valley of Hinnom. And so Gehenna was the way of saying the valley of Hinnom. Now, why would Jesus use Gehenna to speak of what we think of as hell? Some have suggested that Gehenna was a place where uh, the refuse from Jerusalem and surrounding communities was, was taken to be uh, disposed of, and so it was a dump, and there were perpetual fires there because it would consume the rubbish, and, and there would be animals that would go there, and they would fight over the rubbish, and you would hear their gnashing teeth, and they kind of linked the stories of Jesus together with that image. I don't know if that's true or not. Here's what I know is true, is that that story didn't even surface until 1200 AD. 1200 AD, a rabbi uh, spoke and wrote of Jerusalem potentially having this dump called Gehenna. Um, but I don't want to put all my weight in something that surfaced 1200 years after Jesus. But where we can put our weight is in how the Jewish people understood the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, Gehenom, where we get Gehenna from, which is translated hell. The Valley of Hinnom has a rich history in the Jewish world. In fact, I'll show you some places where it surfaces. If you have your Bibles, find 2 Chronicles. First uh, and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles, uh, tell the story primarily of an age in uh, Jewish history where kings would rule from Saul to 
David to then Solomon and his son Rehoboam, the kingdom is split, and you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and then you have this cycle of kings in Israel and kings in Judah, but they're both ruling over God's people. God's people are just split. And one of the dominant themes in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which tells similar stories, sometimes from a different perspective, is that often the kings that ruled over God's people lost sight of who God was, and they would instead adopt practices from the people around them that didn't worship him and they would do that and it was despicable and deplorable in God's eyes. And one place that shows up is Second Chronicles chapter 28 which coincides with our look at the valley of Hinnom. Second Chronicles 28 tells the story how Ahaz came to power and ruled. I wanna take you down to verse three and share with you something that he took part in he burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. One of the nations that the Lord drove out were the Ammonites. The Ammonites worshipped a god named Molech. And the way they worshipped Molech is that they would take children and they would kill them by burning them as an offering. And here is Ahaz, who's supposed to represent God before the people and lead them in honoring God. And what does he do is he goes to the valley of Ben-Hanom and he kills children. He burns them in the fire. It is a place of fire and death and horror. But, but it's not just Ahaz. If we fast forward to 2 Chronicles 33, there's a man named Manasseh that comes to the throne at the young age of 12. The first verse tells us he ruled for 55 years. But if you fast forward to verse 6, it says that he, Manasseh, sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So once again, a valley, the valley of Hinnom, the same valley that Jesus references when he uses the word Gehenna, is a place of suffering and death and fire and wickedness. At the end of Second Kings, uh, later King Josiah is on the throne. And Josiah has seen the errors of those that have come before him. And I want you to see what Josiah does. Second Kings chapter 23. Second Kings 23.10, it tells us this, that Josiah, he desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hanom, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. So Josiah, who's a good king, says, listen, we've got to get rid of this. Like this valley has been known for death and destruction and fire and horror. And we ought to be done. Years later, when Jeremiah prophesies, and I won't have these verses on the screen for you, but Jeremiah 7 kind of shows us a shift to how the valley of Hinnom begins to be just kind of this place that God uses to speak of as a place of wickedness, a place where the wicked are, are tormented, where the wicked perish. 
I'll start in verse 30. It says, The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Like, God's like, I would not even think of killing children. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. And from this point forward, the valley of Hinnom in prophecy is spoken of as a place of slaughter for the wicked, those who refuse to follow God and obey him and respond to him. So this is the picture that Jesus has in mind as a Jewish rabbi that the people would have known the valley of Hinnom, Gehenom, Gehenna is a place where there is suffering and there is death and there is fire for people who refuse to follow God. And so when Jesus begins to speak and he speaks of Gehenna, which we know as hell, he speaks of it as a real place. And most of the mentionings are in Matthew, as I indicated earlier, and I just want to show you those and take you on a brief tour to see where Jesus uses the expression Gehenna and how it refers to this place of torment and wickedness, a real place. And by the way, these aren't the only places that what we would think of as the judgment at the end for the wicked is recorded. We'll look at a few other passages later, but this is exactly where Jesus shares the word Gehenna, or he would have spoken of it as a place of suffering and torment for those who refuse to respond to God's compassion and God's purpose and refuse to follow him. The first mention is in Matthew chapter five. The Sermon on the Mount holds a couple of these references where uh, Jesus is speaking about what life in the kingdom should be like and he's warning about what happens if we don't pursue God's best in this world. And the first place is Matthew chapter five, verse 22, when Jesus' famous words where he shifts the focus from just uh, physically killing someone when it comes to murder to the anger we harbor. And here's what he says in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is a, just a powerful word of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of Gehenna the fires of hell. Just a few verses later, verses 29 and 30, as Jesus talks about lust and how, how that's equivalent to adultery and how we should take strong action to eliminate lust from our life. He's using hyperbolic language, uh, gouging out an eye, cutting off a wrist, not saying that you should, you, you should really do those things. You should take drastic measures to, to remove lust from your life. And, and he says, it's better to lose one part of your body, verse 29, than your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna hell. It's better for you to cut off one hand and it be thrown away than for your whole body, verse 30, to go into Gehenna, hell. But you can fast forward to Matthew chapter 10. This is the next time Jesus uses those words. He's sending his disciples out. He's sending the 12 out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to tell people that the Messiah is here, that, that, that the life has been found and they can find it in him. And as he sends them out, he warns them Verse 28 of chapter 10, he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, yeah, if people resist you, don't, don't fear those who can only take your physical life. Fear the one who, look what he says, the one who can destroy both soul and body in, the word there is Gehenna, in hell. 
in the valley of Hinnom, in this place of eternal torment for the wicked. Fear the one who judges between the wicked and the righteous in Christ. Fear that person. But every time hell is this real place, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus is writing about causing people to stumble. And again, he uses the image of cutting out your eye because it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell, thrown into Gehenna. Uh, Matthew chapter 23. I'm sorry we have to move so quickly. I just want you to see this. Uh, when Jesus is warning the Pharisees about their hypocrisy and how when they lead people to follow God in a way that doesn't honor him, uh, they're doing some despicable things. And in verse 15, he says that you, you travel all over, you put all kinds of effort to, to, to win a single convert. And when you get them, when they're following you, you make them twice a child of Gehenna, twice a child of wickedness, twice a child of hell as you are. And you get to the end, verse 33, and he calls them snakes, a brood of vipers, and he talks about them being condemned to Gehenna, to hell. Here's the point in this just brief survey is that Jesus uses the word Gehenna, Gehenom, the Valley of Hinnom, similar to the prophet Jeremiah, based on the history of God's people, that there is a real place of torment for those who refuse to respond to Jesus. Unimaginable torment. The images used in scripture to describe Gehenna, to describe the judgment at the end for the wicked are outer darkness, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Weeping and gnashing of teeth shows up there as well. We can fast forward to the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13. And once again, we hear fire and we hear uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, that parable, by the way, in Matthew chapter 13 is powerful. Um, I discovered it about four years ago and wondered why I never heard anyone ever teach from it. The story is pretty simple. Jesus tells it, and then there's a few other things, and he comes back to explain it. But the story is this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who goes out to plant seed. He goes out to sow wheat in his field. He wants a harvest. He wants an abundant crop. And once the seed has sown, when he is not paying attention or when he is absent, the enemy in secret comes and sows weed seeds in the same field. And guess what? The seeds germinate as the rain falls and the sun shines and the wheat and the weeds grow up together and his servants see it and they say, uh, master, how about, how about we take out the weeds so they don't choke out the wheat? And the master says, no, if we were to pull out the weeds right now, we would take the risk of uprooting the wheat, what we want. We have to let it grow until the harvest. And at the harvest, then we'll take care of it. And so the harvest comes and the, he sends out the servants first to remove the weeds and the wheat's has taken root and it doesn't come up and the weeds are bundled up and they're thrown in the fire and they're destroyed. And so listen to Jesus' explanation of this, Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. He says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the end of time and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil and they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus is warning 
Hell is real. There is a coming judgment for the wicked and the righteous. And those who turn from God, those who refuse to follow him, will suffer an unimaginable torment and pain. And guess what? That picture is upheld throughout the pages of Scripture. So we now have Old, New, we have Old Testament, we have Jesus, and we have the rest of the authors. They speak about the coming judgment as well. Probably the most famous place is Revelation. At the end of our Bibles in Revelation chapter 20, we hear uh, of this very thing. Chapter 20, verse 10, the devil is going to be banished into hell. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then we have this judgment scene where the book of life is opened, where those who have responded to Jesus in faith, their names are recorded. And for those whose names aren't recorded, look at what happens, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, the reality that hell is real. If you're a disciple of Jesus in the room, if you trust and follow Jesus, then you likely love the words of Revelation chapter 21. You, you love the words of there was a new heaven and a new earth and I saw it coming down and he talks about there will be no more weeping, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, there's no more death. And we talk about the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, and we love those words, verses one through seven. But look at verse 8 of chapter 21. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that everyone who's done something immoral, it doesn't mean everyone who's murdered, everyone who's participated in idolatry. This is talking about a people who have chosen to reject God and pursue that they will be sent to the burning lake of sulfur. Here's the point. This is the difficult news. This is the hard truth is that hell is real. There's nothing in scripture that indicates that it's just a metaphor. There's nothing in it that says this is just some fictional make-believe place that's good for fantasy literature and fantasy movies. No, it's a real place of unimaginable horror for those who reject the love of God and his purpose in this world. That's the first hard truth about hell. But thankfully, that's not the whole story. The second hard truth about hell is that God has provided rescue. And I'll tell you why that is a hard truth in a moment. But we need to remember that just as much as hell is a reality, we also have these words in John. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And everyone who comes to me, everyone who has faith in me, everyone who surrenders their life to me gets to come to the Father. There's a way to overcome the flames. There's a way to have rescue. The famous words of John chapter three, verses 16 and 17, God loved the world. God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, whoever responds to him in faith will not perish but have everlasting eternal life because God did not send his son into the world. This is verse 17. God did not send his son, God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save, to rescue the world through him. Romans chapter five, 
For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, while hell is real, and, and those who refuse to accept Jesus, those who refuse to believe in him, those who refuse to, to accept God's love and, and believe in him will spend eternity in hell, and that should fill you with sadness and sorrow, uh, not, not joy and pride. The reality is, is that a just God, a holy God, a perfect God has to judge sin. He has to judge wrongdoing, but he's not just a just and holy God. The beloved disciple John tells us that he is a loving God. And that loving God has made a way that all who would believe in Jesus, all who would believe that God is real, he has sent his son to rescue us from the sin that separates us from God, that we don't have to spend eternity in hell as we trust and follow him. So while there's difficult news when it comes to hell, there is incredibly good news is that God has provided rescue. If you will, in faith, respond to him. And, and please understand, this is far, far more significant than a fire insurance policy. Let me trust in God so I don't go to hell. No, this is an invitation into a life filled of purpose, meaning, and joy, even in a world that's incredibly chaotic. If, if you... If you don't know that hope, my heart breaks. I can't imagine people suffering for eternity. And my hope is that you'll see that Jesus offers to you the invitation that if you would believe, if you would have faith, if you would choose to trust that God has a purpose and a plan for this world, and you would repent, which means to do an about face, to turn instead of living for yourself, saying it's all about what I want, it's all about my plans, uh, my truth, and instead turn to him and say, God, I'm gonna accept your word, I'm gonna accept your authority, I'm gonna confess you as Lord and King, and I'm gonna live my life underneath you. And that faith drives you into baptism, which Romans 6 tells us represents our own death and burial and resurrection, that his spirit fills us and enables us to live this new life. And guess what? The gates of hell cannot overcome it. That's the good news. So here's what I wanna do. If you're in this room and you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, yes, I want you to acknowledge the reality of hell, but I want you to acknowledge even more the reality of a God who loves you. And that if you respond to him in faith, he can bring newness to your life. And if that's your story, if you're watching online and that's your story, here's what I wanna encourage you to do is to take out your smartphone and I want you to open up your mail app and I want you to start crafting an email to connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, at lebanonchristian.org. And I want you to put in the subject line, my rescue. And I want you to just write a very brief email saying, I wanna know about the rescuing love of Jesus. And give us your name your preferred way of contact, and let us connect with you this week to help you find his love and escape uh, the judgment that's present in hell. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have called us 
And God, I pray for those specifically who are listening, who are watching, who are here, who have yet to respond to you in faith. And I pray, Father, that you would draw them to you, that you would allow them the courage and give them the courage to reach out, that they would make room for you this morning and that they would reach out, whether it's through an email or coming and talking to someone at the front of the room at the end of our service, that they would experience you and your power and your glory and find their purpose. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, that doesn't sound like a hard truth, does it? that there's a rescue. But here's the hard truth for us is that if we're honest, there are some people that have done things that we know don't resonate with the heart of God that we really can't imagine being in heaven one day. And it's hard to imagine that some of the most despicable and deplorable among humanity can respond to the miraculous and amazing grace of God. And so yes, God's rescue is hard truth. Hell is real is hard truth. And here's the final hard truth, is that if you're a disciple of King Jesus, if you have said, I trust and follow you, God has called you to be his agent, to be his witness, to be a disciple maker, to go into all the world and help other people experience this. Because if hell is real, it should bother us that there are people around us every day people we work with and people in our homes and people across the street and people across the world who who don't know him. And yet how many of us are content just to live in in our splendid, oh, I'm saved by Jesus, who cares about the rest of the world? Why doesn't it motivate us? Jesus courageously challenged his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and to make disciples. He didn't say just you 12. He said, no, every disciple of Jesus, go into the world. You're my witnesses. You're my storytellers. We have been given a job if we are followers of Jesus. We're rescued to go to our neighbors, to speak to our children, to make, to make the lives of our children, to disciple them in Jesus more than we teach them how to throw a baseball or how to shoot a basketball or to make sure they're in the part of the right travel team. Like, like your job is to help your child follow him. Your job is to share it with your parents. Your job is to share it with your coworker. Your job is to go and meet your neighbor and intentionally pray for them and to seek opportunities to share with them the wonders of God's love. That's what we're called to do. And yet how many Americans sit and they say, hey, I got to worship this morning. This was really good. I didn't get fed. It wasn't the right music. And the rescued and redeemed people of God neglect our duty Do we care? What moves you to compassion? I know hard-hearted people who, 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 if they hear about a story of a child with cancer or they hear about a story of someone suffering, like even the hardest hearts are melted by, by suffering in our world. I know people who seem very calloused. If you show them the picture of a dog that hasn't eaten in three weeks with their bones showing, their hearts break. If our hearts can melt for dogs, Can our hearts not melt for people who will spend eternity apart from God in hell? Will even be motivated by God's heart? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are called to the world. You are called to your community. You are called to your family. You are called to your place of work. God has positioned you there for a purpose. Will we respond How can you answer that call? I'd encourage you to pray dangerous prayers. If you care, if you'll make room, would you pray that God would give you opportunities to share his hope with people who don't know him? 
Would you pray for God to initiate opportunities with your neighbors, conversations with coworkers? For those of you who are students, conversations with teammates, conversations with girlfriends and boyfriends. Would you respond to the call, not by dangerous, not just praying dangerous prayers, but by obeying, by realizing that God's great commission is for you? Would you respond to his call by taking health seriously? What if we were as serious as hell about hell? What if we didn't talk about in our vocabulary to hell with it, really? Is that what you mean? Because didn't we just see what hell is? How many people in a fit of anger have told someone to go to hell, really? That, that's what you want? What if we reclaimed that? What if we didn't give in to the monetization of evil and wickedness? What would happen in our heart for people who are hurting and suffering? I just wanna end with this final story. Maybe you saw in the news that the night of July 11th, a young 25-year-old man from Lafayette was driving to get gas. His name was Nicholas Bostick, and I've got a picture of him. As he drove down the road to get gas in Lafayette here, just 45 minutes up the road, he saw a house on fire. He quickly threw the car in reverse and went back, jumped out of the car. The, the porch was completely engulfed in flames, ran around to the back door and started banging on the back door. He woke up the family and went in and helped uh, these kids that were in the home come out to safety. And when the three children that were with him got out, they noticed that their six-year-old sister was missing. The parents were away on a date night. With a house fully engulfed in flames, Nicholas Bostick ran right back in the back door. He went down a black, smoke-filled stairwell. He listened to the girl's cries and tried to kind of find her through hearing her cries. And when he found her, he grabbed her and made his way to a second-story window. Where with his hands, he busted out the window. He jumped to safety with the six-year-old girl in his arms and landed on his side, protecting her. In fact, if you want to see this, I didn't want to show it because it may be traumatic for some of you. You can still find, to this day, on YouTube and news sites, the body cam footage of when Nicholas Bostick comes around the corner just two weeks ago holding a six-year-old girl because he wanted to rescue, because he was willing to snatch people from the flames. He hears what Nicholas Bostick said when interviewed by People magazine. He said, if opportunity came again and I had to do it, I would. I knew what I was risking. I knew this next second it could be my life, but every second counted. Will you and I understand that every second counts? And will we risk our comfort to reach those who are perishing? Jude Chapter one, the book before Revelation. Here are the words in his letter. Verses 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We're gonna end service a little different today. Uh, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray that God gives you courage. 
I'm gonna pray that you leave this place on the rescue mission of God. That we believe that hell is real. That we believe in his rescue plan. And if we've been rescued, we believe that we have a role to play in helping rescue a dying world. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth, even when it's hard and even when it clubs us between the eyes. God, I pray that you would fill your disciples in this room with a desire, with a courage to leverage their lives on behalf of your kingdom that people can be rescued from the flames. God, may you give them an undying, annoying nag until they respond faithfully to you. And God, through our efforts and through our prayers, may we see a dying world encounter you. I pray, Father, as we leave this place, we would leave in peace. We would leave in wholeness found only in you with a desire to bring your wholeness to a fractured world. And it's in your name we pray and we plead. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go in peace.